Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, a message of unity as the Prime Minister meets for the first time with the new U.S. President. We're facing tough times, there's no doubt, but we're not facing them alone. Canada and the United States are each other's closest allies, most important trading partners, and oldest friends. Joe Biden vows to work with Canada to secure the release of the two Michaels. Human beings are not bartering chips. You know, we're gonna work together until we get their safe return. And the House of Commons considers amendments from the Senate to the medical assistance in dying bill ahead of Friday's court deadline. We're working with the Senate uh, as an institution that as a government we have reinvigorated and we're working with them in good faith. They have come back with an amendment uh, and a fear with respect to mental illness that we now have to respond to in a very real way. It's Wednesday, February 24th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by National Post columnist John Iveson. John, thank you for being with us. Morning, Mark. So what were some of the key takeaways for you from this meeting between Joe Biden and Justin Trudeau, the first meeting with a foreign leader for the new U.S. president? A lot was on the agenda. There were other people there, of course, uh, and a lot was discussed. What do you think some of the highlights were? Well, I think just as you mentioned, the fact that um, that Trudeau was the first phone call and the first foreign meeting for Biden were statements of intent. I mean, this it's obviously important to the U.S. president that uh, relations with Canada improve from the deep freeze they were in for four years. And that can only be a good thing for Canada. I don't think it necessarily means we get all that we want out of this administration. But, uh, but you know, they're obviously on the same page. I remember when uh, Biden was invited to, to Ottawa after... Um, it was even after Trump was elected. He was invited before, but then Trump was elected, and he came in December of, I guess, 2016. 16, yep. You know, it seemed a curious thing at the time that that uh, the departing vice president was given a, you know, it was a very uh, glitzy affair, um, a sort of state dinner. It now seems to be been <laughs> incredible foresight on the part of the, the Trudeau guys because... Uh, he clearly remembers the, the warmth with which he was embraced at that meeting when he essentially passed the, the baton of liberalism to Trudeau. And now, you know, he's taking it back again. So I do think that, that, that you know, as I say, we might not get everything we want, but I think that the, the, the intent is there that we're going to work together. And what about the issue of the two Michaels, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, who are detained in China? That was discussed, obviously, and Joe Biden even spoke to it afterwards. Is this an encouraging sign in a very long saga for the two Michaels and their families? Well, it is. I mean, the president said that human beings are not bartering chips and that Canada and the U.S. will work together until we get their safe return. So that, again, a statement of intent. And, you know, the difference in from most of these statements uh, by Trudeau and by others on uh, the two Michaels is that it's within Biden's power to make this happen. In that, you know, there's been a lot of talk about whether the U.S. might drop, drop the extradition charges against Meng Wanzhou. If they were dropped, that would seem to open the door to the return of Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig. Do you think that's looking more likely now that that the uh, the prosecution might be abandoned, the prosecution of Meng Wanzhou? 
Well, there were there were reports coming out of Washington that that was going to happen. The Wall Street Journal then reported about a week ago that talks have gone cold, but that tends to happen in these cases. I mean, you know, you you don't always get what you want in a negotiation, and you know, you may temporarily walk away. Now they may have broken down permanently, but uh, but my suspicion is that that somewhere a deal will be done here. It does seem that when Biden says something like we're going to work together until we get a safe return, that something is in his mind when he says that. All right, let's turn to where we stand in the coronavirus pandemic. Of course, we're expecting a lot of vaccines this week, uh, but there's increased scrutiny on the hotel quarantine measures that have gone into place for people returning to the country. There's been some new data released this week about the number of people who are coming back and what's happening when they do. What is the latest on this? Well, the latest is that it's a good idea being poorly executed. You know, I looked to this yesterday and wrote a piece about it, and the, and the responses I got from people all around the world trying to get back to Canada are pretty heartbreaking. I mean, there's not a lot of sympathy out there for people like um, there was a, a Canadian businessman who's lodged a court challenge to quash the, the quarantine hotel program um, because it's inconvenient for him. He's, he's living in St. Martin, he's got beach access, and he doesn't like the idea. He thinks it's constitutionally a bad thing. Well, you know, he's going to be okay in St. Martin. But there are other people who've travelled for medical treatment, or one mother called me to say that her daughter, who's a, who's been a student in London for the last year, has been trying to phone this line to book the hotel, can't get through, has used up all of her overseas minutes. The mother is now doing this. It's taken, she's taking 15 hours to get through. Uh, every three hours, the line goes dead. I mean, it's okay to <clears throat> to say that you have to book into a uh, a quarantine hotel, but that you then have to be able to take that call and make the booking. And the government hasn't been able to do that. Um, the first three days this this uh, the line was open, there were 45,000 calls and only 2,200 rooms have been booked. So it, it's... Um, you know, a typical, in my opinion, government flub. They've just not been able to execute on what they promised. And, you know, I think the, the public is generally with them on the idea that there should be tighter border security. 83% said they, they supported the idea, but they're not going to support it if the system doesn't work. What can be done to fix the system? Is it is it an issue of staffing? Is it, uh, is it is it the infrastructure that's available here? Uh, what what do you think the solution is? Well, I think it's all of the above. I mean, they, they um, clearly they they underestimated how many people would were going to try to come back. You know, this, it's a, there's a, a long tail to this saga, but you know, the Australians introduced uh, quarantine hotels a year ago in March last year, and they require people to spend two weeks at their own expense in a, in a quarantine hotel. They're confined to their room and barge from outdoor exercise. You know, that would be, it seems to be, a, a constitutional issue. Here we're talking about three days, and the government has, you know, it resisted. First of all, it resisted the idea. Paddy Hyde standing up saying that uh, border measures are highly ineffective and, and in some cases can cause harm, which I think she should be reminded about every single day in the House of Commons, because you know, our poorest borders meant we've had two and a half million travellers entering Canada since last March. But once they've decided they're going to do this and they're going to tighten the border, I mean, it was only on January the 7th that they required people to have a negative COVID test before coming in, which seems ridiculous. But 
they, eventually they came round to the idea that it would be a good idea to, to tighten the border. They then decided to do that. They already had the statistics that showed that 400,000 people left Canada in December. Most of those people looking to come home at some point in the, in the following month. So they would have known how many, approximately how many people were going to try and come back in the, in the subsequent months. They didn't plan for it. They clearly have been overwhelmed by the response, have not been able to handle it. So I think that, that yeah, you, you put more people answering the phones. You, you make sure you've got enough hotels lined up that you can put people in. Uh, and if you can't do those things, then you don't have the program. Hmm. All right, let's talk about the bill uh, on medical assistance in dying. There's a deadline on Friday imposed by the courts on uh, revising the bill. It appears that the government is uh, accepting a Senate uh, amendment that would allow people with mental illnesses to access this provision, this option. Um, So uh, that's an interesting development. There's a big philosophical argument around that, but it appears... Uh, does it not that uh, that the government's uh, willing to accept that amendment? Yeah, well, it seems that that, that that it's a fait accompli. The bloc is supporting it, so that would see it through the House. The Conservatives are are opposing it because it now the provision now extends to mental illness, and I think this is a, you know I mean there's no I think clear right and wrong in in any of this. Reasonable people might disagree on it, um, but you know the Carter decision came down from the Supreme Court in 2015. It was relatively straightforward in that it dealt with cases such as terminal cancer. I think there was fairly broad support for that provision, but then the government was forced to accept it in in legislative terms. But now we're starting to talk about Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, Huntington's, and not only that, we're now getting into areas about depression. Should people who are depressed be allowed to... to, um, have access to medical assisted dying. And the Quebec Superior Court suggested yes, and the Senate has agreed with them. And now on the and on, on the grounds that if you're you can't discriminate between mental and physical illness. Now we've we've said that physical illnesses allow you access to men, uh, medically assisted dying, so so should mental illnesses. You know, this we are gonna have to monitor very carefully how this uh, applies from now on. I mean, I think there will be a two-year period where it's right. it's looked at more closely, and and there will be guardrails against uh, you know the mass medically assisted dying of mentally ill people. But but uh, you know, I think we've opened a whole box of of illnesses that were not originally intended in the in the uh, certainly not by parliamentarians. Uh, I don't even think by the courts. Hmm. All right. We will see what happens, John. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mark. That's John Iveson of the National Post. It is shameful that Justin Trudeau and the Liberal government continue to refuse to call the horrific conduct by the Chinese Communist Party what it is, a genocide. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the Toronto Star, Alia Mohammed argues a vote is not enough to combat Chinese atrocities against Uyghurs. Mohammed writes, It is evident that the crimes occurring against the Muslim minority group are not something our country should stand idly by and watch. Yes, China is a mighty world power, and there are many potential economic consequences if Canada speaks up. But we cannot stand by and say nothing. Canada is renowned globally as a country that not only welcomes grateful refugees, but also speaks up 
for vulnerable populations everywhere. When we see injustice, we say so. Canada, let's call out this injustice today. In the Montreal Gazette, Tom Mulcair argues Team Trudeau is getting set for a spring election. Mulcair writes, From gun control to language rights, the Trudeau government has been checking the boxes on unfulfilled promises while making promises about timing and quantities for vaccine deliveries. If fulfilled, those promises would mean that by late spring, most Canadians would be looking back at the pandemic. It's easy to guess the election theme, as Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole sends messages about fiscal restraint, Trudeau will be saying, we've had your back, they won't help you. In the Globe and Mail, Robin Urbach calls Canada's hotel quarantine program leaky and half-baked. Urbach writes, as a way to disincentivize non-essential travel, the new rule requiring a three-day hotel stay actually makes sense and just might prove effective in dissuading some casual vacationers from leaving the country. But as a public health measure, the hotel quarantine program doesn't appear to have been designed with actual evidence in mind. It is at once not strict enough to meaningfully control the potential influx of infection and intrusive enough to raise serious constitutional questions. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The federal government's single largest procurement in history will come under close scrutiny today. As CPAC's Martin Stringer reports, the parliamentary budget officer will release his latest report on the more than $60 billion program to build long-awaited new frigates for the Canadian Navy. Mark, this isn't the first time that parliamentary budget officer Yves Giroux has looked at the program to construct 15 new warships for the Navy. Already, several years ago, after he looked at the program, the government had to admit that the price tag for the new frigates had almost doubled from $26 billion when the program was first announced in 2011 to more than $60 billion. Today, it's expected the PBO will find that the cost far surpasses even that figure. Also, the delays continue to mount. The Defence Department has now admitted that the first of the new frigates won't be delivered until at least 2030. That's nine years from now. The PBO's report could well add to the pressure on the government to rethink the whole surface combatant shipbuilding program, as it's called. So with that in mind, the Parliamentary Budget Officer will also provide his estimate of the cost of abandoning the current British-designed frigate and opting for one of two other models. But Mark, all of the scenarios bring with them continuing delays and ever-growing costs. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will virtually attend the Liberal caucus meeting and question period. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh will speak to the media ahead of a vote on universal pharmacare. Indigenous Services Minister Mark Miller will take part in a news conference to provide an update on COVID-19. And Minister of Seniors Deb Schulte will host information sessions about how seniors can prepare for tax season. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Wednesday, February 24th. Tune in to Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.